Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's all about due diligence. How does it work and why is it such a crucial step? We'll dive in the details of investment manager due diligence, including how to choose a manager or strategy, how to know if they're working, and when to walk away if they're not. Plus, how is Orion's due diligence process different from other firms? That's with our guest, Chris Hart, head of investment due diligence at Brinker Capital. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, I do want to ask you about the markets, but first, and way more importantly, you just came back from Antarctica. I want to hear all about it. How was the trip? Well, if I had just one word, I'd have to say epic. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it's the end of the world, right? So in terms of the landscape, it was magical, mysterious, spiritual, grand, ethereal. I mean, all those words. I mean, words and pictures really couldn't capture it. But we did see a lot of wildlife. So we saw plenty of penguins and whales and seals. And we didn't see anybody else because it's the end of the world until like the last day. We hiked, we kayaked, and we were on a French ship. So what was really cool about that service was amazing. And we did have like a five to seven course meal every night. So that was pretty rough. And, um, (laughs) you know, we even had private lectures from uh, kind of a famous BBC nature film guy. So that was really cool. So anyway, it was amazing. And it really wasn't on my bucket list. It was really my wife's because it was her seventh and final continent. But I want to go back. Wow. And the kids were with you or not with you? No, 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 no. Nope. Nope. In fact, I was one of the youngest people on the boat. So that was also refreshing to be a kid like that. (laughs) (laughs) Always good. Uh, Yep. That's pretty awesome. Oh, Robin, I got to interrupt one more thing. Just since we're talking international, something we were talking about beforehand, I just want to kind of bring it up is that we were talking like over the last 90 days, we have had listeners of our podcast from 65 different countries which is really, really cool. cool. The one thing that, you know, being kind of competitive, it was this cool. Of course, you're from South Africa. So there were more total listens from South Africa than all of France, where my daughter lives, and Norway, where my son lives, put together. So in fact, Norway only had one listen in 90 days. So I'm not (laughs) sure what's up with my son. So your son's not doing a very good job. I know. (laughs) All right. Well, he needs to talk to his friends and get those numbers up. I know. Yeah, we'll work on that for 2023. Okay. All right. So back to the markets. 2023 is in pretty good shape, it looks like so far. What are you watching for at the moment? Well, January was great. And I would say that probably a leading reason for it was something called just the January effect. So January is usually a pretty good month. And usually it's a pretty good month after you've had a down year. And after you've had a down year, a lot of those stocks that were sold towards the tail end of the year due to tax loss selling, kind of harvesting those tax credits, they usually snap back in January and tend to lead the market. That's exactly what happened. So that said, the price action was really strong. And if you just kind of look at the charts of the various markets, they do look 
like pretty good. So by the time we publish this, obviously we'll know. I do think that February, we could probably see a step back again. It'd be very natural. And so we'll see if that kind of plays out. As from a basic thesis, I think it still kind of holds and the data has been supporting it. I think economic growth will is generally going to be stronger than most expect. Inflation probably could be a, a little bit higher than people expect. And the Fed probably won't pivot as fast as people think as well. But bottom line, it's off to a good start. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. Chris Hart is head of investment due diligence at Brinker Capital. And Chris is also the recipient of the top 20 gatekeeper award by CityWire. So Chris, welcome to the weighing machine. Thank you, Robin. And thank you for having me, Rusty. It's really great you're on the podcast, Chris. We got a ton of questions for you. This should be a really fun interview. But of course, the first question may be the hardest, but I think it's also the most fun. And that is, we need to hear a walk-up song in our heads for this interview. Chris Hart is coming up here to the interview. What song can we hear? Well, it's funny because there's a lot of questions to talk about, but that was one I probably spent the most time on <laughs> in my head. Usually the case. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have heard that the playlist is pretty eclectic, a strong collection of music across different genres. And I definitely want to be additive to the playlist. So you'll have to tell me whether this is or not. But my playlists are very mixed. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so at my core, a classic rock fan. But you go into the 80s and 90s grunge and hip hop, that's on all my playlists, all of those different areas. So, But if I had to pick one, you really had to pin me down. I'd go with Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. Nice. I just love that guitar intro. All right. I don't think we have that one yet. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Awesome. Very cool. And I don't think we've had a Guns N' Roses song on the playlist yet. So I think we yeah. might have had Welcome to the Jungle early on, oh, maybe. maybe. Yeah. But anyway, it's a, it's a strong addition. So <laughs> right on. Perfect. All right. Well, Chris, so you've been at Brinker Capital for a little over nine years now. Tell us more about your background and what brought you to Brinker. Sure. So I graduated and when I graduated in the early 90s, I moved out to San Francisco and it was at that time I kind of got my first job out of college working for a tech company in south of San Francisco. And that was a job as an accountant. So I enjoyed my time there. It was a great feeling to be part of a larger company, part of a growing company. But I really wanted to get my heels wet and my feet wet on all things Wall Street. So I spent a lot of time in San Francisco kind of preparing for earnings calls. But I really liked what was happening on the other side of the earnings calls and then the analysts digesting those earnings and writing reports and all those good things. So fast forward after a few years, I made my way to Wall Street to get that kind of roll up your sleeves first job on Wall Street at Prudential Securities doing equity research. And after that, I decided I really wanted to focus on continuation of learning. So either kind of a CFA track or an MBA track, I went back to business school, went to work for an investment bank. And eventually made my way to, at the time, this is before the global financial crisis, Smith Barney, and specifically the consulting group at Smith Barney, based in Wilmington, Delaware. So that was really where I got my first taste of due diligence. And then through the global financial crisis, Morgan Stanley got paired up with Smith Barney, which was part of Citigroup, and eventually made my way to Brinker to take over for due diligence with Brinker Capital back in January of 2014. So it was an interesting road, lots of great firms, big and small, a few stops here and there in between, but have really kind of been in the, in the due diligence field and in the investment field 
since the early 2000s. And it's been, it's been a wonderful ride so far. Awesome. Well, tell us more about your role as head of investment due diligence. What does the sort of the day-to-day look like and what's your team like? Sure. Well, we have a big team. There's a team of eight people, including myself. We are all generalists and we have purview over all the investment product that is available for advisors to use within their client portfolio. So we spend all of our day and all of our weeks and months throughout the year interviewing portfolio managers, talking to analysts, making sure those managers are doing what they say they're going to be doing, and then running all our analysis and doing all the roll up your sleeves work that goes into our decision at the end of the day, which is whether we want to bring on new product, whether we want to keep the existing product that we have on the platform or make a change, which might result in a termination. So it's really our job at the end of the day to make sure we continue to put our stamp of approval on all the investment product that's curated for clients of Orion and Brinker. Yeah. So you and I know that obviously manager due diligence is important, but break it down for us, kind of in your own words, why is this essential step in the process of building investment portfolios? That's a good question. There are so many ways to kind of peel this onion and think about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, we talk about the mission of prospect, plan, invest, achieve. I feel like due diligence is at the center of that mission in some ways more directly, in other ways a little bit indirectly. But at the end of the day, there is so much product out there for advisors to access. And they could spend all day looking at product, reading about product, trying to figure out which is the best to use in portfolios for their clients. But our job really is to help filter that universe, bring that universe down to a more manageable number and say, you know, here are investment strategies across asset classes, different styles, different vehicles that we think have achieved success and have a higher probability of success to use in client portfolios going forward. At the end of the day, also, you know, time is everyone's most precious commodity. So anything we can do to save advisors time and help them deliver better outcomes for clients, that's the central tenet of what we're trying to accomplish from a due diligence perspective. I kind of think on that point, you know, most investment portfolios are these days for many investors, they have multiple managers or strategies in them. And I think people probably think when they watch CNBC or something that it's all about timing the market or picking individual stock, but they don't realize that really the kind of the foundation of all these portfolios is due diligence that people is doing. That's really sort of the core value add that many investment firms are providing now. So, all right. So due diligence involves a lot more than just looking at numbers and quant screens. Can you walk us through your team's process? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So the quant screens are part of it. You can't get away from the numbers, obviously, in this business. But again, using a bit of a mosaic theory, that's one of the pieces that goes into our process, which I like to say is a a strong mix of quantitative. Of course, that has to be there, the numbers, the risk, the performance, all of that needs to be part of the equation. But we also put a pretty strong premium on the qualitative part of the due diligence process. And that is really getting to know our firms, getting to know the key decision makers, and how do we make that happen? So we'll start off, if we start at the very beginning, you think about, you know, where do these ideas come from? What is the idea generation process? Myself and other analysts on the team, we have lots of collective experience. So to complement things like screens 
and quantitative screens, what we're looking for, what may be doing well at a particular point in time or over time. In a particular asset class, we also will add in different managers, different strategies that we know participate in the space. And we want to be inclusive and exclusive at that idea generation phase. We want to be inclusive in terms of maybe there's a strategy that doesn't pass through the screen, but it could be for one specific reason. So we want to be additive and start with the larger universe. Also across the firm, aside from that organic due diligence work and ideas that kind of bubble up from firms and strategies that we know and like and have confidence in, we try to take input as well from key members across the firm. So we'll talk to the sales team, we'll talk to external sales folks, we'll collect indications of demand. So we don't want to pretend like we have all of the answers all of the time. We also want to be open to new ideas and we will bring those ideas through our due diligence process. So typically what that means to us is that we'll start off with an introduction call. This is more just high level, talk about the firm, talk about the product, not a deep dive into the product. If these firms pass the quantitative screen up front, we'll have that introductory call. And if we want to take a deeper dive, then we'll send one of our due diligence questionnaires, which is pretty comprehensive. It's hundreds of questions covering a wide range between the organization, the philosophy and the process of the underlying strategy, trading, reporting, administration, and obviously compliance and legal. That will give us a big portion of the qualitative picture, if you will. Again, we can run all the numbers. We subscribe to a lot of data. We do a lot of analysis given the product's performance history and risk metrics, but all this qualitative data we're capturing helps us paint a holistic picture of the firm and give us a baseline understanding of who and what is important and how do they do what they do. So at the end of the day, once we complete our on-site visit, which is another very important part of our process where we actually go and spend time with the manager, spend an afternoon, spend a morning, spend a day with the manager, really kick the tires on-site. We'll write a Guiding Star research report, which helps crystallize analyst opinion on a strategy. We'll pass it through our investment due diligence committee and ultimately we'll get launched on the platform. So I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer. There are a lot of steps. There's a lot of details along the way, but some of those differentiating factors are the fact that we write reports that contain opinion. So not just what a manager does, how they do it, but what we think about how they do it and ultimately how the results have been borne out over time. All right, well, let's get into just a few more of those details. And I have three questions here for you that we can get into. How many managers does your team cover? How many meetings do you have? And how many reports do you write? A lot, a lot, and a lot. So, <laughs> But busy is a good thing in our business. In general, if you look at kind of a line, line item of inventory across the platforms, and this is between separately managed accounts, mutual funds, fund strategist portfolios, some active ETFs. We have about 585 different line items of inventory that my team, the due diligence team has purview over. Generally speaking, that's about almost 400 strategist models, over 130 different separately managed accounts, 50 or so active mutual funds. And that's across a universe of about 130 or so different firms 
in the asset management industry. And that is everything from the big brand names down to the boutique or emerging managers. So following up on that question, what do you think is like sort of the capacity for how many strategies or strategists an analyst can cover? Well, I do think it really does depend on, it's a very simple question, but it depends on what you're covering. If you have strategist portfolios that may have multiple risk tolerances, conservative through aggressive or all equity, and say there's five or six of those risk models, but they all follow the same process, that's kind of six line items, but really one set of thinking around whether you think that that strategy is attractively constructed and delivers value to the client. So, you know, that is six line items, but, you know, really one when it comes, as we think about it, when it comes to kind of coverage. But, you know, aside from those nuances, if we really want to think about kind of how many firms and how much product in general is kind of a good range for our analysts, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 different firms, maybe 35 to different strategies, again, across vehicles. And that's with a little bit of wiggle room and room for growth to the upside as well, because we are always continuing to kind of enhancing and upgrading our platform and the number of offerings on the platform. Yeah. I want to follow up on one other thing you mentioned earlier before I hand the ball back to Robin, but you mentioned earlier how you get new ideas on strategies to do due diligence on. What is a typical time frame between sort of idea creation and the due diligence process and then when it's actually available to investors and advisors? It does take a little bit of time to kind of push it through from you know idea to analysis to launch. I would say in general, if we could be pretty efficient we don't have any problems scheduling and traveling and doing all the due diligence work that we need to do. We would hope to have that process wrapped up maybe in a quarter or so. So anywhere in that two to four month range. And again, depending upon logistics and availability of the managers we're meeting with and interviewing with as well for consideration. So what do you look for in a manager or a strategy? And in that note, do you have any favorites? do have lots of favorites. Um, This reminds me of the playlist question. So many good songs, but if you only have to name one. At a high level, what do we look for? Stability, for sure. That could be at the firm at the investment team level. Consistency, transparency. We will always want to have all the information that we need at hand be amongst the first calls when things happen at a particular strategy. We're always going to look for an investment edge or a differentiator at the firm. And, you know, this is investments and it's, you know, a performance driven industry. So we're always looking for results over longer periods of time. We understand there can be noise kind of during shorter term periods, but we're looking for investment success over longer periods of time. And so we'll look at things like rolling periods instead of just, you know, a year, a month, a quarter or anything in, in a vacuum. Okay. So I got to follow up another one of Robin's questions. The favorite manager. I mean, you could say manager X and why she or he is your favorite. You've met thousands of managers. Okay. Well, I am happy to say manager X and manager Y come to mind. We look for firms with strong people. So, you know, we have, you know, I'm not afraid to name names here. We do have relationships with firms like River Road in Louisville, Kentucky. We like the London Company in Richmond, Virginia. There are so many firms that are worth mentioning, but I just mentioned those two really for a couple reasons. Firms that have a general alignment from a compensation perspective. 
said differently, management and key investment making personnel portfolio managers, they're sitting on the same side of the table, either through equity ownership in the firm, dollars and their own dollars invested in the strategy, certainly tracked over longer periods of time. That is definitely something that we look for and is prevalent in those two firms. We also enjoy working with those firms because they have one overarching investment philosophy and process kind of spans all of their products. They're not trying to be all things to all people. They have a particular way in which they view the market and they have been successful over time and they will implement that across their different strategies. So not a firm that's trying to be all things to all people. We really respect that kind of knowledge, the depth of knowledge and, and expertise at those firms. I would say also they're always mindful of capacity, which is a great thing from a due diligence perspective. Everyone's chasing dollars and cents and need to be responsible to the business by leaving products open for too long, where the products become less nimble, becomes more difficult to buy the types of positions that these portfolio managers want to take in an efficient way is always something we're tracking and looking at. And then generally, when we look at the ultimate investment results, these managers, they know what they're good at. They know what environments they do well in. They know what environments they may face a little bit of a headwind in. But in general, the investment performance results have borne out over time and really speaks to kind of the efficacy of their process. So those are two firms that come to mind. They're smaller. There's many, many others I could mention. I don't want to single them out as we still hold them to the same standards. So if they make a mistake or they're doing something that is not working, we'll still have those tough conversations. So my next question, you've kind of already answered this, but I can just feel that probably some listeners will probably want to follow up on it some more. So how do you define success or failure for a strategy or a manager? And again, the answer is it's a mosaic, but I'm sure somebody's saying like, come on, man, just what number or two numbers do I need to look at? Are there like certain numbers that are more important than others or certain attributes more important than others? You just mentioned a bunch, but people are looking for shortcuts here. Is there right. such a thing? Right. Well, you know, if there was such a thing, the due diligence folks may be out of a job because we would just kind of give that, <laughs> give everyone the answer or provide them with our crystal ball. But, you know, obviously we talk about performance, but we talk about performance over time. So, and more specifically, risk adjusted performance. I mean, there are strategies that can do really well, but take a lot of risk. Obviously, strategies that have more muted investment return, but take a lot less risk. You know, those strategies that can, you know, put up a strong sharp ratio, look at that at relative outperformance per unit of risk is really important to us. That consistency factor I mentioned, looking at rolling periods instead of any one year in a vacuum kind of gives us maybe a three-year rolling period and looking at, you know, the percentage of success that this strategy has had over time. If you look at kind of monthly three-year rolling periods since inception of the strategy. You know, it doesn't tell you everything, but it's not a full market cycle per se, but it's enough time to say, okay, does this strategy and do the people managing it, are they able to deliver performance in a consistent fashion kind of over time? So, you know, risk-adjusted metrics like sharp ratio, rolling performance metrics are really important to us. Yeah. All right. We just got a shortcut to getting rich, Robin. Good deal. That's what I'm looking for in this podcast. Yep. All right. So how does a manager or strategy actually get removed from your platform? Is there a certain sequence and how does that process work? Well, it's a basic question, but it can come down to 
some more nuanced answers. And this is when we look ourselves in the mirror and we have our internal team meetings, this is what we're asking ourselves. Really one of two questions, whatever the problem is. Once it's identified, how do we classify it? Is it one, either short-term and fixable, or is it two, long-term and structural? And really at the end of the day, depending upon the severity and the magnitude of that issue, that will dictate kind of the course of action that we need to take. Some examples of things that may be short-term and fixable, maybe it's an analyst leaving the team, maybe it's one of a couple portfolio managers leaving the team, Maybe it's a, a hiccup in performance. 2022 was a big macro-driven year, so there were headwinds and styles that were out of favor. You know, those macro headwinds probably will dissipate. They will dissipate at some point in the future. And so maybe there's a reason why they're having a performance problem, what we would call kind of a hiccup from an attribution perspective. On the flip side of that coin, if the problem or the red flag that was raised that we think is really long-term and structural, maybe the investment process and philosophy has changed. And in our opinion, changed for the worse. It can change for the better, obviously. The parent organization may be not providing enough resources, we think, to the strategy or the firm. We've seen a pattern of personnel departures for that particular strategy. All those things will lead us to put a strategy on watch, which is simply raising a red flag and saying, okay, there's an issue here. We need to explore further. And we need to give that issue time to play out where we may not have as much patience or tolerance or willingness to get the bottom of the issue, though, there is a meaningful compliance or legal issue that would usually necessitate a little bit more of an aggressive action to see, again, you know, why that may have happened and what the recourse will be at the firm. That makes sense. Okay, here's a question. I So most investment firms will have to answer the question like how are you different than other investment firms? Why is your process unique and why is it potentially better than other options? How is how is your due diligence effort different from other people's due diligence teams and process? That's a great question because I really do think we have a few meaningful differences and improvements here. As I mentioned in kind of my background, I came from a wirehouse, due diligence, larger team, larger firm. I can say having worked at big firms and the largest platforms on Wall Street down to working at Orion and Brinker, where we have a strong and growing platform, the level and quality of due diligence is the same. But at the end of the day, one of the main differentiators is that we have more latitude and we can be a little bit more efficient with our decision making. That's not to mean we're lower on structure and the institutional structure we put around our due diligence process. But you don't have five committees to push a strategy through where it takes a year or a year and a half to get a small cap strategy through all the hoops that it needs to get through to get launched on the platform. And maybe you've missed an opportunity because the strategy has been performing well and attracted a lot of assets and and there's not as much capacity as there may have been three or four quarters ago. So I do like the efficiency and the nimbleness. If we want to do something, we can expedite, we can follow our process, but we can be a little bit more aggressive with our timeline. The second thing I wanted to follow up on was our Guiding Star research reports. You know, a lot of due diligence firms will pass along fact sheets, pitch books, explainers of how a particular manager does what they do. What a lot of firms are a little bit lighter on is opinion around whether they think what those firms are doing 
is good or bad. And we really make a conscious effort in our guiding star reports to weave that opinion in. So at the end of the day, you can read a guiding star research report. You can get an idea of what the strategy does and how they do it and what their success has been over time. But importantly, and as a differentiator, you can understand whether the due diligence team and the folks that spend all day talking to lots of different talent and investors in different areas of the market, what we think about how they did it, whether we think it's five stars, three stars, four stars, or like the previous conversation, we think something's kind of trending in the wrong direction and we need to take action against it. So we're talking about process and how Orion and Brinker are sort of different in this regard. Orion has something that's called the five P's. Can you walk us through those and what are the inputs that you're assessing for each of them? Sure, be happy to. So we think of the five P's as people, philosophy and process, although technically it's two P's, but we just call it one. <laughs> Portfolio construction and implementation, the parent organization and performance. Can't get away from performance. So starting at the top of that list, people. What do we look for in the people? It could be the size of the team, their capabilities, their bios, their investment experience and acumen in that particular asset class. We talked a few minutes ago about alignment of compensation. And that people also extends to the firm. Is the firm providing that investment team that supports that product enough resources? It could be data, could be technology, could be analysts, could be analysts overseas, all of those things. So that is one input for that, that 1P people. When it comes to philosophy and process, we want to get a good understanding of what they do, what their critical inputs are, has it added value over time. For portfolio construction and implementation, that is more speaking to consistency. Obviously, portfolio construction is a little bit self-explanatory. How do you do what you do? How many stocks are in the portfolio? How many bonds? How many mutual funds or ETFs, et cetera? Obviously, you'll, that includes those base metrics. But also, how has it been implemented? Has it drifted from a style perspective? Is this strategy still the type of strategy that we hired a couple of years ago to come onto the platform? Are they staying in there? in the area of the market that they say they're playing in or have they strayed away from that. And at the end of the day, performance. We talked about absolute performance, relative performance. That's against benchmarks. It's also against peer groups. Some benchmarks are tougher to beat. We can only fish in the bond that is already been constructed from the available peers, if you will. So we hold ourselves to being able to find the top managers in that peer group and then look for performance over shorter and longer periods of time and provide opinion on that. Here's a question that might be fun. I hope it is, is that, so you've been doing due diligence for a couple decades now. How has it evolved over this time? And I guess related to that is how has it changed because of COVID? Yeah, we probably talk about that all the time with every manager and the answers have been evolving. They were much more different, I would say, kind of, you know, through the beginning and through the middle of kind of the, the COVID and pandemic experience, they're kind of taking a little bit different shape and a little bit more consistency now. But, you know, this business is always involving information is cheap. There's so much information being passed around. What I think is interesting from kind of my early years in due diligence to current is there's so many more different types of media and ways to consume investment content from these managers. They send out videos, they do webinars, podcasts, et cetera. Obviously we get deluged with pitch books and 
quarterly performance commentaries and annual investment letters and all the print news that we will consume and do part of our do and include as part of our process. But all the different ways to kind of interact with managers has been helpful in terms of productivity and efficiency from a due diligence perspective. And kind of segue, Rusty, to your question about COVID, it's been interesting because, you know, certainly I talked about on-site due diligence and kind of being in the at-home office environment for these managers as being a really important part of our process and a differentiator for some as well. But through COVID, obviously, travel was shut down. Now, fortunately, we had the technology bridge with Zoom and sessions and, and video sessions, which have now become kind of part and parcel and normal throughout the course of everyone's Monday through Friday. But prior to that, it was really just conference calls and you know talking to people, but not seeing them as well. So technology through COVID, although we started to boost our travel at the end of last summer, where it was really on hiatus for you know a while before that, we've kind of gotten back on the road and gotten back to seeing managers where they work which has been great. But the technology as a bridge to help us be more efficient, maybe we don't have to see a manager every single year. Maybe we can see them every other year and in between on the off years or certainly on demand as needed quarterly or if an event happens, we can just connect with them via Zoom and and see all the key players and managers face-to-face. I still don't think it's a substitute for an on-site due diligence visit at all, but it does help create those kind of connections and trust, which are important as well from due diligence perspective. Yep. All right. So if you're a financial advisor or an investor, I mean, what should be looking for in a due diligence manager? I guess to restate it, let's say you're a financial advisor Mm -hmm. now, Chris, and you have to pick a firm. And what questions would you ask about their due diligence effort? I would start with, you know, who are they? What's their experience? Have they been doing this for a while? Certainly, what are their qualifications? We take great pride of having CFA charters on the due diligence team, CFA candidates for younger analysts and people that are, you know, pursuing their CFAs. We want to make sure the organization is well resourced. Do we have all the tools we need? A lot of that comes down to data and getting access to data so you can do the proper due diligence analysis. Uh, Certainly travel because on-sites I think is important, would be high up there. And at at the end of the day, how is the team structured? Are they specialists within one asset class or are they generalists across all asset classes? I've worked in both environments. I enjoy being generalist because I do think, you know, from an advisor perspective, they're putting money to work for a client. They're not just only picking equities or only picking fixed income when they look across their book. They want to know what are good choices to provide in all areas of the market so you can create an entire portfolio for clients. So are the people that are evaluating these strategies, are they being well-versed in all different asset classes? just makes your ability to interact with, push back on, and speak with the portfolio managers and analysts that run these products it provides much better kind of education and content so you can be knowledgeable in all areas of the market and really get a better understanding at the end of the day of the product that you're evaluating. So sort of in that same vein, talking about analysts in your position, you hire, you mentor a lot of analysts. So what are some of the key characteristics and attributes that you're looking for in a good analyst? First and foremost, I can't get away from work ethic. You need someone that is talented and motivated. I always subscribe to kind of a do your job type mentality. 
as much as possible. But it's a heavy mix of collaboration and teamwork, as well as self-motivation and individual work. So when we're thinking about younger professionals, folks that are coming onto the team, you know, we can teach people how to read attribution. We can teach them how to analyze data or how we like to view the data that we talked about earlier. We can talk about markets and what may be headwinds or tailwinds for a particular strategy. But at the end of the day, you know, the people on the team, younger analysts, people that we want to hire need to have a willingness to learn kind of a, an insatiable kind of desire to continue to get better at understanding the markets, understanding these products. But that strong work ethic has to be there. That kind of motivation to do work as a team and as an individual has to be there. We cover a lot of ground. We don't have a lot of free time during the day. We're very busy as lots of working professionals are. So efficiency and productivity is also really key. You know, kind of on this point about analysts, I would imagine just given the the role itself and given that they're generalists, if you were somebody interested in the investment industry, what a fantastic role to be in, to kind of hear various investment professionals at all stages and levels and talking to some of the best and the brightest in the business. I mean, I'm sure you have no problem hiring new people if, when you need to do so. No, I think you hit on something that's really important, Rusty. That's what's kind of kept me engaged for so many years in this business. We talk to a lot of people. There's tons of stuff to read out there. But the folks that you read about in the Wall Street Journal or in Barron's or on CNBC, those are the people we're talking to every day and plenty of other people behind the scenes that are extremely talented and smart. So it is exciting whether you're talking to a portfolio manager that most intelligent investors would have heard of or know about, you can say, oh, I met with them last month, right? Talked to them three times this year, and I've gotten kind of an idea of what they're thinking about in their particular area of the market. So that is, to me, one of the most exciting elements of the job, just to get to know these people and put a name with a face with some you know, really highly regarded and well-respected investment minds. That is pretty cool. So kind of related to that is, what are some of your philosophical influences when it comes to investing or even due diligence? Any particular mentors, books, managers? Who's had an influence on the way you think? Well, a couple different answers to that. From kind of a education, a literacy book perspective, I know he's a hometown hero, and well-known investment figure, but I'm a big fan of... Uh, Professor Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School. Been following his work for a very long time. I know he's been in lots of different media outlets over the years and is a well-respected author. I just love his books, Stocks for the Long Run, The Future for Investors. Given his career in investments and finance, he has all the analytical chops that anyone could ask for. But given his time kind of as a professor and communicating with students and teaching and educating people, I think it's easy to listen to. I think it's easy for him to take complex topics that may be, you know, difficult for many people to explain and kind of boil them down and, and give his thoughts and opinion on those products and what may be working over time. So he'll kind of take that the whole stock market, which is, you know, a Pandora's box, if you will, and boil it down to things like quality and value and dividends and investment success and inequities over time. So that's just one example of someone that I think is definitely worth following and been someone whose work I've kind of followed throughout my career. 
All right. Well, let's switch gears to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And the first one is, in your position, you're surrounded by, of course, incredible resources and ideas. So given that experience, what is currently your favorite investment idea? Right now, I am really intrigued and not trying to be a Johnny-come-lately because I know they're doing well so far through January and 10 days into February. But I'm a big fan right now of small caps. I'm a fan of small caps for a reason. I'm at my core a fundamental investor. I believe in valuation. I believe in value over time. And right now, small caps are trading at historic discount to large caps. If you look at their kind of average forward PEs in their average last 12-month PEs, they are at a meaningful discount to large caps. So small caps are trading somewhere around 12 times forward earnings. Large caps are around 16. If you look at kind of trailing earnings, you have to go back 20 plus years to the early 2000s for small caps to be at at this much of a discount. So one kind of caveat to that is quality is important in small cap. I'm a due diligence analyst. I think it's an area of the market that is also ripe for active management. Over 40% of the small cap universe doesn't make money. They don't have earnings to speak of. So you want to make sure as much as you can, you're investing with those higher quality, well-capitalized small caps, where I think the opportunity is there. So from a valuation perspective, I think that's a pretty interesting area of the market right now. You know, if small caps do well, as you hope, and there should be also a tailwind for active managers against index and passive products as well, generally speaking. So cool. All right. So our next question is professionally and personally, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level, both physically and mentally. So what are some of the things that you do to make sure you're performing at a high level? Well, I think one of the most important things is just taking time away from work, sharpening the saw, so to speak. You know, Technology is a blessing and a curse. Now we have cell phones and laptops and we're completely mobile and fully replicated at home. So you never really get away from work like you used to just shut down and walk away from the office, you know, years and years and years ago. So I do think it really is important. And if you want to stay kind of high energy and kind of motivated throughout the days and weeks and months, you know, in a work, it's really important to spend time with kind of family and friends for me. It's important to spend time with my kids. It's important to just spend some time outside of talking about stocks, bonds, and things like manager due diligence, because that will always be there. That said, you do need to be responsive. So I'm still checking my cell phone like all the rest of us at night or on the weekends to see if there's any kind of emergencies to speak of. But you know, in addition to kind of taking care of that mental aspect, taking care of the physical side is also important. So always trying to find time to take walks with my wife and the dogs and and spending time outside, trying to find some time to, you know, ride the Peloton or do a little strength training, things like that, wherever I can. And all of that kind of, you know, contributes to kind of having the energy and helping keeping myself engaged in this business for so many years. Okay, one more for you. So you've been around a lot of successful people who've helped you get to where you are today, as we all have. Who are some of those people that you are professionally thankful for? That's a good question. There's a couple that come to mind right off the bat. First, I would always give a shout out to Breakers founder, Chuck Widger. He kind of gave me my start or helped give me my start here at Brinker and now Orion back in 2014. So always extremely appreciative of that opportunity because it's been a great ride so far. But 
completely on the flip side of that, I have to go all the way back to those San Francisco days right out of college. I was an East Coast kid moving out to California. I'd never really spent any time there. And I was working for a tech company, as I mentioned, as an accountant. And it was an entry-level salary, but to me, that was plenty of money to hang out with my friends and be social and do fun things that 20-somethings do in cities like San Francisco. But he was an accountant. He is, came from Deloitte and Touche and pulled me aside and always dripped on me. And he said, you know, Chris, listen, I know you think you need a lot of money to go out and hang out with your friends, but you don't. You don't need as much as you think you do. This firm has a fabulous stock purchase program for employees. Being so naive, I was like, well, what's that? And he said, well, you know, throughout the year, you'll have time to purchase company stock. And trust me, you want to max out that purchase. You'll thank me later. Boy, was he right. I didn't know really what that meant. I didn't have the perspective in my early 20s, but I contributed as much as I can. And if you remember back in the early to mid 90s, that was kind of the precipice of the big tech run leading up to the tech bubble at the end of the decade and eventually the bursting in 2000s. But for me personally, that was invaluable investment experience, just letting my money work over time, buying those stocks, end up paying my way through business school and then some. So I'm extremely appreciative of just that. The first manager who said, listen, you know, put some money aside, let it work for you in the market. And it did. So I'm really thankful for that. Nice. All right. One more before we let you go. And that is, do you have some recommendations for our listeners on content that you're consuming? Books, newsletters, podcasts? Sure. So many there. I really love Ben Carlson's blog, Wealth of Common Sense. Again, lots of different topics, but just you know, digestible and insightful and always timely. I do like Matt Levine from Bloomberg as well. You know, Kind of the opposite. He'll get really deep and go really down to the weeds for specific event or happening or something that's kind of topical and of interest to investors and kind of catching headlines. Lots of different industry publications. I think Mutual Fund Observer, it's been around for a long time, but lots of good nuggets in there and some very thoughtful kind of analytical work as well. So, you know, those three come to mind off the top of my head. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris. It's been great to have you. And tell us, how can our listeners stay in touch with you and your team at Brinker and Orion? Sure. So, you know, certainly appreciate the opportunity, Robin and Rusty. And, you know, through podcasts like this and Rusty's good work and all the other content that Orion's putting out, you know, that will kind of our best thinking from a due diligence perspective will kind of bleed through to a lot of that work. We do get shout outs sometimes in industry rags and publications like CityWire. So we are happy about that. And they'll ask some questions here and there about, you know, what's on our mind and what we like and what we don't like. So between kind of, you know, Orion's external communications and uh, publications, you'll kind of get some of our best thinking kind of coming through, certainly with those Guiding Star reports as well. Good stuff. Actually, I do have one more question because you are an investment professional. That means you are paid for your gift of prophecy. And we are recording this two days before the Super Bowl, but we do need your prediction for the Super Bowl. And how many points will the Chiefs beat the Eagles by? I mean, do you have a score prediction? That is a loaded question. So maybe I'll flip that around. How many points will the Eagles triumph over the Chiefs? I'm a Philadelphia kid through and through. So we bleed Eagles green. Usually Philadelphia is full of cynicism. We always wait for the bubble to burst, but I feel pretty good about this year. I have ultimate respect for the Chiefs. 
Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and the rest of the talented coach and players in that organization. But, you know, we did well against the Giants. We did well against the Niners. I'm thinking we could continue to do well against the Chiefs. So I'm going with a close game, but 31-28 Eagles. Yeah, that's what we wanted. We wanted to score. It'll be so much fun. Because by the time this is published, of course, it'll be like four weeks afterwards, and maybe Philadelphia will quit celebrating it by that point. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. As long as we have something to celebrate, I'll take it. Yeah. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.